Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Hey, I hope everybody's doing well. I'm sorry for uh, the late running of the show today, but uh, I was a little under the weather last week and happy to be back in the studio. And so I'm uh, very, very excited to talk to you all today. The show I did about two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, about early stage, had a huge response. And a lot of people wanted to know if I could expand on that show, if I could talk a little bit more about the early stages, the warning signs, and and things like that. So I thought, well, why not? Let's do that today. So, you know, really at one time, it was assumed that everyone with Alzheimer's disease was unaware of their memory loss and not troubled by it. And even today, some of the medical professionals mistakenly believe that this is true in every case, that people just don't know when they're having memory loss. And I don't think that's quite true, you know. Um, many people are aware of their symptoms, maybe even hyper aware of their symptoms, and they realize when they can't remember a name, um, they can't remember a street that they were looking for, they forget their grocery list and things like that. Um, when you have that happening multiple times a day and multiple times a week, that is when I would be very concerned that possibly you're starting to have some memory loss and some struggles with it. But there are people that that are really oblivious to their symptoms and other people that know when things are kind of falling apart. I think we with family members that have had uh, some type of dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever it is, we're hypersensitive to that. So it kind of hits our awareness more often where other people – kind of fluctuate in their awareness. Um, They are aware if they are sort of taxed beyond their abilities, but unaware if they are challenged or not. And for the most part, people with Alzheimer's disease have a partial or limited insight into how this disease is affecting their life. They're, They're not on top of it all the time. They're not Uh, struggling with it all the time, but they kind of get an idea. And the disease itself really oftentimes diminishes awareness about the nature and the severity of the symptoms, um, as if like a dimmer switch has been lowered that reduces the ability for them to see it clearly. If that makes any sense to you, so so they're they're not all aware of what accounts for the differing levels they have of awareness. Personality might play a role in all of this, uh, but it doesn't by itself cause 
the range of experiences that you see. Um, so, for an example, the, the extent and the location of damage to the brain could also affect that person's insight, whether or not they realize that they're having problems. Um, we have a lot of growing evidence based on MRIs and, and different brain imaging studies that show the levels of awareness that is linked when we have deterioration of the frontal lobe, which is the part of the brain associated with awareness and your insight and your judgment. And so when that is affected first, you will probably have more awareness of what is going on just because that's the part of the brain that really uh, is affected first and probably the most. And it's sort of nice that over time, a person's awareness of their symptoms will generally diminish to a point where they're not aware that they have any symptoms. I call that the silver lining stage. And I think that's kind of a blessing. I think when you can't remember that you don't remember, uh, you're probably a whole lot better off. So how people with Alzheimer's perceive their symptoms truly, I think, is key to understanding how they're going to receive your help, how they're going to let you help them, how they're going to be able to talk about it, right? And there's a really good chance that someone who recognizes their limitations and the effects that, that are happening with the early stages of the disease will see your help as something that is necessary and something that they'll appreciate. I, I hope anyway. Um Someone who's not aware of their symptoms might see your helpful efforts as intrusive, unnecessary, demeaning. Um, and it, it matters whether or not you have a trusting relationship with that person. Because if you do, you can truly enhance the level of cooperation you get from them. But trust alone isn't going to win that person over, I guarantee it. Because if they can't see the need for help, trust isn't going to get you there, right? And even though you have the best of intentions, you may not be able to persuade somebody to accept your assistance. In the beginning stages, it's just difficult for people to recognize that they're having a problem and be able to say, oh, yeah, I need help with that. Uh, they're more afraid that if you know the problems they're having, you're going to tell somebody, it's going to become neighborhood gossip, it's going to become family gossip, and that can be a real problem, right? So for the minority of people that have younger onset or just early stage Alzheimer's that are truly aware of their disease, I think their life, their daily life can become pretty frustrating and they might become self-conscious and worrying about making mistakes and they try to compensate for that, uh, for the cover-up of their lapses and they oftentimes fall short on that. That's where we see those early stage symptoms because they're, 
they're trying to answer a question with a yes or a no, um, or they're trying to to answer inappropriately, and that sends off those signals that say something is really wrong. And they can become depressed if they start dwelling on the failures that they're having and blaming themselves for the problems uh, caused by the disease, not being able to remember something, not being able to complete a task, and they feel stupid or make you know, self-depreciating remarks about themselves like, oh, I I must, you know, I must have Alzheimer's or I must be, I must be just old age or, or I should have known that or I'm really stupid. I don't know why I'm letting this disease get to me. Things like that can, can really, I think, push a person to a place of pretty severe unhappiness and frustration. And we're trying the best we can to limit those as much as we possibly can. So those people who are aware of their limitations also have a tendency to take their frustrations out on other people. They get angry if we're trying to help them with their bank account. They get angry if we're trying to take over some daily routine that they have enjoyed and they want to be able to um, do themselves and, you know, even driving and things like that. These things can get really, really tough. I had somebody tell me recently that he was really upset about his wife's changing role in their marriage. And he told me he always gets angry with his wife. She's always bossing him around telling me what I can do and what I can't do, he said. And in a in a in a in a talk with like his wife, you know, she's thinking, well, you know, I'm trying to help him as much as I can. But he's saying, I'm not in charge. I'm not free to come and go as I please. I, I can't do things I've done in the past. I feel frequently that my wife thinks she owns me now. And I guess part of my anger is being directed towards her when she's really trying to fill in the gaps for me. And I feel like I'm not my own person anymore. I hear those kinds of comments often. I'm losing my sense of self. I'm losing my ability to even express gratitude when when somebody's trying to help me. And, you know, it's just it's it's one of those things where they're doing the best they can. But it is just frustrating beyond words trying to come up with the things that we want to say and do correctly. So, you know, I mean, clearly the people who are aware of their disease, they... They have a tendency really to vary in their response to living with the effects of the disease. Uh, Some people are super conflicted about asking for or receiving help. Um, I don't need, they'll say things like, I don't need it yet or I don't want it right now. Um, And then they turn the corner a little bit and eventually they'll think, well, I can, I really do need help right now. It won't really hurt me. I, I, I think I could 
could use the extra assistance. I'm always glad when I do get help. Um, but some people say, well, it's just a slow process and there's a struggle between independence and dependence that is just nauseatingly in your face. It's it's difficult to to describe to somebody how hard it is when you want their help, but you don't want their help. So, you know, part of this is that a lot of people are in a state of denial. And it's a common defense mechanism. It's it's built in so it can shield, you know, your human psyche from any painful realities of what you feel you're losing. I, I, I think that we get a lot of of trouble with understanding that we have faulty memory and judgment and we don't really have this disease. We're just struggling with it with the with the day-to-day aging and and why don't people just leave me alone? And they don't realize a lot of times that they're forgetting names faces, places, and they're not even troubled by it. You know, they they just forget that they forget. So it's not that big of a deal. Um, if, If that's the case, then when people forget that they forget, even in early, early stages, um, that puts it in a place where, you know, it makes everything kind of mild. It's kind of non-existent. Leave me alone. I'm doing fine. Everything is well. All is well with the world. Their egos are built on a lifetime of achievement, of the things they have done great, of the things they have been super proficient with. And they are not ready to have anyone tell them different. And those That false bravado, it stays so well preserved that they can't recognize what is apparent to everyone else. I I think, you know, people people might think, well, you know, I wasn't really aware that I was having difficulties, but my difficulties were made plain when somebody else saw it and pointed out my lapses. And they do it in an abrasive manner. That pisses people off. (laughs) You know, you can't experience what you've forgotten. I need to say that again. You cannot experience what you've forgotten. So when, when you're confronting people who are oblivious about whatever impairment they're having, I can tell you, It's not only pointless, but it's going to be upsetting to them and eventually to you because they're going to be angry about the fact that you pointed it out. (laughs) And, you know, the disease itself really, truly is to blame for their their seemingly lack of concern that, you know, since they're unaware of the need for help, it's difficult for them to... 
um, even it, it's diff- difficult for us to elicit their cooperation. Even when they clearly need it, they're driving down the wrong street. They're putting too much pepper or salt in the food. They're not following the directions. And when we're trying to help them, it just is off the chart upsetting. So in general, you know, people are either highly aware of their disease or they are completely oblivious and there's no in-between. There's absolutely no in-between. For most people in the early stages, personal awareness fluctuates generally at a lower level than we expect it to. Um, we think that they're going to just fall off the deep end and, and so on and so forth. But but the the... Nature and the degree of their impairment is going to be affected by who's dwelling on it and who isn't. Who is letting their tiny little errors go and who's making a big deal out of it. The more open conversation you keep with people with the early stages, the better off you're going to be. Because if they don't have the ability for recall or their memory is is slipping to a point where, you know, they don't realize they're asking you something 10 times, uh, you can't really get upset with them because it's just the it's just the natural slide. It's the slope of the disease. It's what happens when. You know, people are not able to follow appointments that they have, their ability to understand rhetorical questions, um, looking at the future because the future isn't, isn't there. They've got to live in the now. They've got to live in the now because if, if they can live the way they are right now and, you know, like mind, body, and spirit because they're having a pretty good life, they should hang on to that as much as they can. Because, you know, they can't recall the recent past. They can't really plan ahead for the future. And they they tend sometimes, people with the early stage Alzheimer's, to focus on the present, what's happening right now, and the distant past, because that is a long-term memory solidified by the back of the brain that they know they can recall at any moment. So sometimes they start living in the past a little bit quickly. And we know that they will slide down about a decade at a time every two to three years. And so because of that, they try to, they try to hang on to those past stories, right? Um, they, they really want to s- focus on their 
former standards of thinking and the way they were doing things because if they can do that, they, they feel like they can have better recall and they can be calmer in their responses to people and not getting upset when somebody's pointing out their errors. So it, it really matters to be able to um, really, really help assume responsibility for some of their remembering and planning for them. Because if you can help by saying, hey, you've got a doctor appointment tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., is there a certain time you'd like me to wake you up? Just those gentle nudges. Not get up in the morning and then tell them right then they've got an appointment to go to and they're struggling to get out of bed and wondering why you didn't tell them. You may have to remind them anyway, but most of the people in the early stage aren't going to be struggling that much with with um, not being able to remember every single thing that's said to them. So it will help them experience that living in the present and and gives them sort of a, a deeper appreciation for for the planning you're doing for them and help you to communicate with them more freely and openly so that they're not so upset. Now, sometimes the way people perceive their symptoms is super radically different from our image of what it feels like to us. And we're trying to understand what they're thinking and why they're behaving in a certain way. And and we as a caregiver no longer can simply rely on our past experiences with them. And past experiences could limit our insight into how that person is affected and being challenged by the disease. So it's a tricky little thing there. So no matter how compassionate we are or empathetic we may be, when we try to understand the thoughts and the feelings of the person with Alzheimer's or whatever dementia, there's a chance that our assumptions could be wrong. And we have to adapt a whole new way of thinking and acting so that we can accommodate the changing perceptions that that person is having in their daily life, what they're understanding, how people are receiving them, how people are talking to them, what you feel about them. Are you seeing them in a diminished capacity? Well, they're in the early stages. Why are you doing that? That's what they're thinking. They don't understand why everybody's all concerned about everything and I can still do this and leave me alone. So if you can say, I'm just trying to understand how you feel. Talk to me about your feelings. I say this over and over and over. Try not to, f- try not to focus on the symptom itself. Try to focus on the emotion and the feeling of how that person is reacting with you and your actions because you literally set the tone 90% of the time 
if you're looking confused, if you're looking dumbfounded, or if you're looking at them as though, you know, they have two heads. People get frustrated by those kinds of things, and we have to work through those issues. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about why is it still important to remain social with friends and and family because it hurts when they walk away from us. Uh, I've had, I did an in-home assessment this last week where a gentleman said him and his wife were always super social people, having dinner with friends and going to the country club and things like that. And now nobody's calling. Nobody's coming around. So what does that person that has a diagnosis own and how you're interacting with other people that could be putting up stop signs from them wanting to hang out with you or talk with you? We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988 to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. All right. So... Why is it important to still hang out with our friends? Why is it important to still have a social life? Anybody who's ever become disabled, regardless of their underlying condition, they experience a sense of losing his or her place in the world. And for people with Alzheimer's, that's true in both the literal and figurative terms. And since they become disoriented about time and place, and this is a common symptom, it causes problems for them. Not understanding sometimes what a conversation's meaning is. What what is the narrative to all this? I don't get it, right? And on another level, their sense of self might be threatened as connections to people, places, and things start slipping over time. And the world can be easily, I mean easily, easily, easily become a confusing place. So it's vital that people with Alzheimer's have caring people who can help connect them to their environment, their friends, their former work, 
their likes, their dislikes, their talents, all those kind of things. And the presence um, or absence of caring people in your life that have disappeared or people who are coming back or staying around could be the most significant factor you face that's going to determine the quality of life that you have. Because it feels like you're becoming more disoriented every day. And when you have lost yourself, when you have disorientation, um, the way that your life and your connecting to the people in your life becomes dicey at best and you're not sure if anybody notices what's going on. You you wonder when you're at a restaurant if you've ordered the right thing, if you can even read the menu. Sometimes reading and things like that uh, become bigger issues than than anybody ever can imagine. And, you know, if you think that the bearing of your experiences is based on your personality throughout your life and you're worried, am I becoming more crotchety? Am I becoming too naive to people knocking on the door, I'm being too friendly to everyone that comes around, or I don't want anybody coming in my space. When you get a little grouchy about things, you don't like the music or somebody doing something next door at 8 a.m. or whatever it is, and you go out and you yell at people and you're being unkind to people, sometimes we think that the disease itself is what they're afraid of. And sometimes it's just our depression. It's our attitude of life sucks and I'm angry that I got this disease. And it's difficult for people. And when you don't know how to interact with somebody, when you are are working on a basis of fear as a person with a diagnosis, you're cutting yourself short to having good communication with other people. Try and be aware of that. If you have if you have the disease yourself, try to be very aware of how you are interacting with people because you could be sending off a signal that says you don't want to be bothered or you're afraid of having people around and that could become extremely troublesome if you want to keep your social networks moving. And I have always believed that when family and friends can compensate for the disabilities that you're having and that they're looking at what you can still do and not what you've lost, you know, promoting your your ability to still be able to to do the things that you can still do and your remaining abilities, you have a slower decline. 
I do believe that. And in the same breath, uh, a sort of an impoverished environment can typically really intensify a person's symptoms and absolutely diminish their quality of life. And I, and I know that when people are grouchy and they're angry and they're depressed and they're sad and they're not functioning well, your symptoms go a lot faster. They're deeper. They're stronger. They're more troublesome. They're irritating. And if you can just look at something happy, if you can try to focus on the happiness of the world, find joy several times throughout the day. I don't care if it's petting a dog or cat, hugging your spouse, whatever it is, having a phone call with somebody that you know and and love. If you can do that, you can improve your quality of life. And it, it, it requires you to have a really great sensitivity about your own physical and psychological and social needs that you have and taking responsibility for meeting your own needs. You can't expect and i don't i don't mean to be rough on the people with the diagnosis right now but you can't expect people to want to be around you if your attitude sucks you can't y- you know just because you have the disease doesn't mean you have to look at every day like you're dying you're not dying you're still here i want you to concentrate on the personal interactions you have with people, and try to influence the positive energy that you're putting out and receiving from people. You smile at somebody, they're going to smile back at you. If you frown at somebody or if you're grouchy, they're going to grouch back at you. They're going to want to leave the house and not be around you. So don't get upset with them. You have to to really work at that. And I'm telling you, a good relationship with the people that you are around is better than the most powerful drug they have out there. I've told you over and over and over, uh, Aricept, Naminda, and Exelon are not save-alls. They just just try to help you with um, opening blood flow to the brain and being able to to uh, see the world more clearly and communicate more clearly, but their efficacy is is limited. So what you do after that's not working anymore is super important. So what do you really need? What do you need? Well, I think you probably, if you have the diagnosis, you want to be respected. You want people to look at you the same way that they always have. They want their preferences to um, be acknowledged, that they have the same basic needs that they had before, the physical need for food, for clothing, for a happy home, uh, you know, just good shelter. And if you can... Really look at the things that you need to be relatively happy. Intimacy. 
intimacy is a big one. People with Alzheimer's lose the communication skill to give their family members hugs and see when they need you. And that is a tragedy. That is a tragedy. It's one of the things I hear from people often that they they know that their person that has the diagnosis could use more hugs. They love more hugs. But the two-way street ends somewhere in the mid-stage. So trying to be more cognizant of it in the early stage will help you enormously. Make sure that you're always hugging your person. You're thanking them for them caring for you and helping you with the symptoms and the fact that they're showing compassion and love because that will make a big difference. The trajectory that changes so rapidly is is most especially when there's a spouse involved because over a short period of time, they stop being the spouse when in, intimacy is ceasing and they feel like they are just a caregiver now and nobody feels good about that. That is uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. So what else do people with Alzheimer's really need? They need community. They need a sense of people around them. They need to still play cards with friends on Saturday night. They need to go to concerts. They need to take a drive in the mountains. They they need that walk down their neighborhood sidewalk or taking a hike depending on where you live, take them bowling. They need meaningful activity. They need that meaningful activity. And again, intimacy itself, that's just referring to the closeness and the familiarity that people and places and things bring. Uh, an intimate relationship, you know, like a marriage or friendship, individuals that care about each other, people that look out for each other's welfare, those are important, important things. And that's that's in our home, that's in our community. And without that intimacy, fear and loneliness take over. And when that Need for intimacy isn't met. Oh my God, you get you get a bunch of real and imagined fears that can take root and not let go. And people with early stage moving into mid stage feel like they're losing control of their life or they're being abandoned by family and friends. And they can become obsessed with locking doors to their home because they're worried about intruders or something like that. Oh, I'm telling you, delusions can can strike when people start losing that trust and that that 
that ability to feel safe and fear kicks in and and takes over 90% of the time and they start worrying that their husband or wife is having an affair and will leave them. That happens all the time. And they also have a fear of becoming dependent and becoming a burden to you. Um, they don't. They don't like that. They they can experience frustration. Um, you know, I, I had somebody tell me the other day the thing that they hate most is asking for reminders. Um, that they feel like people have a life of their own and shouldn't have to come and take care of them all the time. And whether or not these worries are warranted for people, they are real. They are real to the person with the disease. And intimacy through physical touch and staying in touch with that person helps that person to overcome those fears. They need family and friends around. It's it's sometimes it's it's completely exaggerated, right? And and when they're having problems with that intimacy. It shows when they shadow the person that they love. Oh, yes, caregiver nation, I am talking to you. You know this. It drives you crazy. Every time you leave a room, they follow you, you know. They 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 always want to be with you. If you want to leave, you can't leave because they're worried about where you're going. Are you having that affair again? Are you just not wanting to be around them, you know? And that shadowing is is oh man it can it can work on that last nerve, and just being in the physical presence of a person that they trust gives a person with Alzheimer's that reassurance that they're okay. Okay, it makes them feel like they're. They're safe when they can see you, when they can lay eyes on you. And it it just adds that reassurance. But if they're alone, they just feel fearful. Their, their, their day is off. They just don't feel like they're safe. Um, they want their home to be comforting and and you want it to be comforting too, but you can't be there 24 hours a day. So this is where pets, you know, dogs, cats um, can come into play. So if you leave, the dog could still be there. And, every, you know, everybody knows dogs and cats give you unconditional love. You can't make a mistake with them. <laughs> the only mistake you can make with a dog and a cat is not playing with them when they want you to play. But typically, a treat will fix that every single time. You'll become their best friend, right? So if you can find ways to to still feel safe, to still feel like you're okay, music, art, uh, your favorite TV show, watch a sporting event, something while that person is gone. Because when that intimacy is broken and they're no longer in your visual space, that can really jack you up. That can really play on your mind and make you feel 
like you're out of touch. And, you know, I, I think one of the biggest things that that happens is people lose their their customary ways of connecting with with people and the world and they still need people to reach out to them and help them feel connected. They need people to ask them if they want to go to the grocery store. Their sense of initiative, you know, it wanes sometimes. It's not always there. They're not, you're not going to call somebody if you're the person with the diagnosis and ask them if they can do something with you. So it helps if a family member can do that or a friend can do that for them. Because if you can ask them, hey, do you want to go for just a ride in the car? Uh, I need to go to the grocery store. Would you like to go with me? Those kind of things make people feel safe. And it makes them enjoy being known and appreciated and, and that you care about them. And our sense of community gives us a sense of belonging, you know, some some group that we belong to. Oh my God, you want a sense of a community? Just look at Facebook. People are always counting likes and loves and, you know, why doesn't that person ever give me a love? They like every single one of my posts. What does it take to get a love? You know, it's funny when you see things like that. And and community can, can consist of a person, a family, a, a group of people, you know, who can just see beyond the the superficial realities of the value of each person. That's what I mean by sort of the likes on Facebook and stuff. And people with Alzheimer's often feel cut off from their family and friends and their neighbors, and they think it's due to their forgetfulness or their impairment. And they feel a little bit like lepers, you know, of biblical times. They feel rejected. They feel unwelcome or out of place in society. And, and, and we place a high value on self-reliance. And if we feel like we don't have that self-reliance, if we're not as productive as we used to be, if we can't use the intellectual prowess just to have a conversation with somebody, that makes you feel like you're not on your game. It makes you feel like you know, oh my God, I'm acting differently than people who are per se normal. And all of a sudden I'm starting to feel alienated and embarrassed and, and oh my God, I I can't remember somebody's name or I can't remember a simple task. And, you know, people say to me all the time that they, they used to be full of self-confidence, but now they are really conscious of the mistakes that they make. And they don't want to feel foolish in front of other people. Uh, I see that all the time. And, you know, if somebody has a true community, they've got the family and friends and stuff like that, they're going to recognize the different experiences that you're having and hopefully treat you in a humane and dignified way and not like you're a person with a serious disability or something. We, I think we look too strongly at what that person has lost, okay? And the person in the early stage, they need that reassurance. 
that they're accepted for who they are and not for what they're doing wrong and not for the disease. And if they can maintain their family friendships, if they can remain those remain with those caring community pieces and if they are accepted without you know the usual conditions that are met if if their limitations can be downplayed and their remaining strengths celebrated the personal worth of that person can not only be sustained but they can they can become much more warm and friendly and the atmosphere is going to become lighter and sweeter and kinder and hopefully enrich everybody's lives. I mean, it's it's important. And for you as a caregiver, you need to probably have your needs met often in a support group where you can go in and kind of act like you're 100% or... And, and just say, you know, this and this and this is happening. Or you can let your guard down and let that group be your lifeline and hope that they understand, you know, what it feels like for you to be shadowed or losing that intimacy with that person. And the person with the diagnosis, if they're going to a support group, um, they know that everybody in that room understands what it feels like to be lost and forgetful. And then it doesn't make any difference to you anymore. You know, if you feel like people understand you, if you feel like people are engaging with you and they like you and they love you and they think of you in a friendly way, you're going to do so much better. Well, I just wanted to sort of recap and and give you some more ideas about the ways that you can function through early stage. Uh, I, I think this needs to be a continual conversation because more and more people have this early diagnosis and are listening to my show. And I want to give you some ideas of of how that person is thinking that has a diagnosis so that we can not just assume we know that the way that they used to be is the way they are now because it changes as time progresses. Well, I hope that was helpful for you today, and I look forward to seeing you all next week with more resources and information on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.